The following recording is from Parramatta Christian Church. We pray that this message inspires you in your walk with Christ. Uh, thank you for your presence here. Thank you for the, the truth that your word is living and active and powerful. And we pray that as we come around your word, will you give us hearts to receive all that you have for us. Um, give us ears to hear and eyes to see the wonders and the truths of your word. And, and Lord, give us wills to obey humbly uh, so that we might live the lives you've called us to live, so that we might honor and glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray. Um, as I was thinking about this message and trying to come up with a great opening illustration uh, as I was preparing, I kind of went, if, if there was one passage in the Bible, there's probably several passages, but in the book of Thessalonians anyway, that we were coming around that I probably didn't need a great introduction for, it's probably this one, right? We're talking about sex. So who needs a great in- introduction and illustration? Um, th- when you think about our world, we, it's kind of this contradiction, On the one hand, we live in a culture that is obsessed with sex. Uh, It's just everywhere. Um, and in, in media, in, in, uh, in billboards, in, in a whole bunch of... I mean, there's just so much information. Now with the internet, uh, it's just readily available and accessible. And uh, nobody has a real problem talking about sex. Nobody has a problem about doing uh, it, having sex with anyone they choose. It, it's just a completely different culture that we live in to, say, 20, 30 years ago. On the other hand, we also are reeling from the damage of sex, uh, the brokenness that's coming to people's lives, the hurt, the abuse. We have royal commissions. We have a whole bunch of other things going on in our culture at the same time that's kind of reacting against sex in some way. And so it's like we, we've reduced sex down to this base instinct that's just a biological, physical reality. Uh, on the one hand, it's like we've cheapened it to nothing. But on the other hand, we've kind of wrapped our identities around it somehow so that to kind of place any restriction or any inhibition is considered bigotry or, or arrogant or restrictive somehow. Kind of, there's so much confusion about this. On the other hand, the church hasn't done very well with this topic either. When we pretend that as Christians we don't even have sex, you know, we, we don't we don't talk about it. You know, we don't we don't like to even dance in case it leads to sex. Um, you know, we just there's so much kind of fear and nervousness and anxiety about talking about this topic. Uh, I, I don't know when was the last time you heard a sermon about sex. Um, we, we kind of pretend that. It doesn't happen in, in Christian circles because we're so godly. We've kind of done the opposite thing that our culture has done. We've elevated sex so high that you know, we, we just kind of pretend we're angels. You know, we're asexual. We, we don't even think about this. We don't talk about it because we're not doing it, so it doesn't really matter anyway. But the Bible won't let us go to either of those extremes It paints a very, very different picture of sex. It's not something to be reduced down to the level of animal instinct. And neither is it something to be elevated to the angelic, asexual idea that sometimes we come across in churches. The Bible makes it clear that sex is is a God-given gift to be used in appropriate context for the purpose of God, for the glory of God. Uh, The Bible shows us that we've been created human, not animal, not angel, human. And as human, incredibly sexual beings. 
And God has a lot to say about that and a lot to speak into that. And so uh, if you're visiting with us, uh, you're probably really glad that you're here today or you're probably thinking, man, I couldn't, this is the worst week to pick to be at church today. Uh, we're, we're part of a series and that's the beauty of preaching through a Bible book. You can't avoid bits. You just kind of got to, oh, okay, that's the chapter we're dealing with. So we've got to go there. Um, so we've been kind of journeying through the book of 1 Thessalonians. Uh, we've been looking at this theme of growing in different things to be more reflective of the people, of, people God is calling us to be and how he's calling us to live. And we've looked at growing in our identity as God's people. We've looked at growing in authenticity, what it means to be genuine and sincere and real. Uh, we've looked at growing in resilience. How do we be strong in God and continue to be faithful in God? Uh, last week, we looked at growing in love and concern and care for each other. This week, our focus, obviously, looking at chapter 4, uh, verses 1 to 8, is growing in holiness growing in holiness. This word appears several times in this passage. Um, And this is the clear focus that Paul has for the church in this part of his letter. But before we actually dive into the specifics of the text, um, again, one of the things we love to do as we preach is kind of show you how to read your Bible. So you're learning and you're understanding how to actually uh, see things that are there as you're personally reading your Bible. And so just kind of taking a step back and showing you some things that are happening in this context, there's two sandwiches that Paul is using here before he gets to this passage. One of them is the love sandwich. Now, if you just jump back to the the last part of chapter 3, which we looked at, last week, it's where Paul's talking all about love. Uh, May the the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other. Notice he uses the very same idea at the very end uh, of this section, and we looked at that last week as well. Chapter 4, 9, and 10, uh, we, uh, in fact, you you do love all of God's family, and we urge you, the same word he uses in verse 1 of our section, chapter 4, we urge you uh, to grow in this grace, to do this more and more, which is kind of the same thing he says in uh, verse 1. Now, we are you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. So he's kind of deliberately linking holiness to love. And I think that's pretty cool. He's saying that part of our expression of loving and caring for each other in community is to actually grow in holiness. That's the brilliant the way he sets that up as a, this, these two columns, bookends on either side of this section are about love and growing more and more in this. The second sandwich is what I call the authority sandwich. Um, Again, in this passage, uh, verses 1 and 2, Paul begins by reminding them that he's speaking in the authority of God. He says, um, I've told you how to live to please God. Uh, So this section is part of uh, Paul's general instructions he's given them beforehand about just generally living holy lives. And then he says, I ask you and urge you in the Lord to do this. Notice, I urge you in the Lord Jesus. That's kind of him saying, this is not just me saying this. This is me saying this with the authority of Jesus. And then verse 2, he says, for you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It makes it really, really clear there. And then right at the end, he says the same thing. Verse 8, to reject this instruction is not just to reject human beings, but to reject God himself. So Paul is really bringing out the big guns here. And I believe the reason why he's doing that is like we watched in our opening video when we began this series. Um, Thessalonica was a, a, a culture that was... Uh, obsessed with sex Uh, and and there was just sex everywhere no one in their culture thought it was immoral or wrong or sinful to have sex with anyone and so this church is caught in the very middle of that and Paul is saying to them 
you can't be governed by how your culture thinks about sex. You, you need to be governed by what the Word of God says about sex. And I think that's so relevant for us because like them, we too live in a culture that just says, you know what, sex really doesn't matter. We, we can just do it with whoever we want as long as it makes you feel good, as long as it's your desire. You can give expression to that. And Paul would say, hold on. How much are we buying into our culture's messages? And he sandwiches this in this section by saying, "This I'm giving you this on the authority of Jesus. And we would do well to hear Paul's words as Jesus' words to us today. As a corrective maybe to sometimes how we think about sex because we've been so influenced and informed by our culture. So what does Paul say about holiness? What does he say about sex? Well, I want to come at this passage using one of Lewis's good techniques, and that is asking questions. So I've got kind of three questions that we're going to um, focus on, the what, the why, and the how questions. I've got four what's, three why's, and two how's for you. How's that? That's pretty good. Watch me go through this in our time. All right. So what does Paul have to say about Holiness. Well, verse 3 is where we kind of jump in. He says, it is God's will that you should be sanctified. That word means holy. And in the section in chapter 3, at the last few verses, he says, may he strengthen you, verse 13, in your hearts that you will be blameless and holy till when in the presence of God when our Lord Jesus comes. So Paul has an agenda here. He wants these Christians to remain holy and blameless till Jesus comes. Right, so because of that, he's saying to them, this is not just a here and now thing. This is a long-term journey for you. So the first thing he reminds them is that this is something that God wants for you. It's God's will that you should be holy. That's the first thing he's saying very, very clearly here. He's picking up on all the stuff from Leviticus where over and over again it says, Be holy for I am holy. And I love the fact that Christine used a passage from Leviticus today in her communion to remind us that God says, I've saved you, I've redeemed you, I've rescued you. Now you're mine, now you need to be like me. And Paul is drawing on all of that to say, you should be sanctified, you should be holy. And then he goes on to give them four what's. What does holiness look like in the context of sexual purity? How should we understand this? And he begins with the very, very general, and then he becomes very, very specific. Now there are some difficult phrases here in the Greek where commentators and scholars have scratched their heads going, Paul, we don't really know what you're talking about here. But I want to kind of step back and look at the broader principle that Paul is trying to teach them, even though we might not fully know the exact situation or the specific instructions he's giving to this church that they would have known about. Because it seems clear that Paul, he knows that generally the church is doing the right thing. Because in verses 1 to 2, he says, look, I know that you're doing this. I want to encourage you to do it more and more. So it seems like he's addressing a minority within the church who are not doing the right thing. So what are these four what's? Well, the first thing he says you should avoid sexual immorality. Pretty straightforward, broad, general. Now that word sexual immorality is the Greek word porneia, which means essentially any sexual activity outside of the covenant of marriage. That's pretty much it. We can kind of break it down because when I was a youth pastor, I'd get young people say, but what about this? And what about that? And what about this? The Bible doesn't specifically say you can't do that. I'm going, Paul couldn't have used a bigger word to include everything that you can think of that's outside of marriage. It's like Paul is saying, don't play sport. And the, key, the young people would say, but what about tennis? Okay. Don't play sport. What about basketball? Uh, don't play sport. 
That's what he's doing here. So that word includes, let's talk about some stuff. If you're dating someone and you're fooling around physically, that would be sport. (laughs) Does it include pornography? Yes. That's sexual activity outside of marriage. Does it include um, having sex with somebody else's spouse? Definitely. That's sex outside of marriage. Does it include having sex with someone you love a lot? Yes, unless they're your husband or your wife. Does it include having sex with someone that I'm going to marry one day and we're really serious about our relationship? Yes, it does. Uh, whatever situation that you can kind of think of, does it include this? The answer Paul would say is yes. If it's outside of marriage, yes. So he's, that's the first general thing he says. Pretty straightforward, pretty clear. Then he goes on. You should avoid sexual immorality. Each of you should learn to control your own body. Now this is one of the really tricky phrases. Because the word that Paul uses there is a word that can be translated in different ways. And some of you in your NIV Bibles... I'm not sure about the ESV, but in the NIV Bible, it has kind of an alternate interpretation. The reason why the word he uses can be its vessel. It's that each one of you would acquire your vessel. And commentators are going, how does, what does that mean? And how does that fit in with what he goes on to say with the other specific instructions? Now, vessel in the New Testament has at some times been used to talk about the human body. So that's why the NIV has kind of chosen that option and gone with body. But it can also mean wife. And so that's why the margin says to acquire a wife. And so there's been kind of debate. Uh, I think most commentators and scholars lean to the body part. Interestingly, Gordon Fee in his commentary, and this is going to rattle your cages, he says... The reason why he's, he's not convinced with either of those, he says, because if, if Paul wanted to say body, there's a different word he could have used that's just simpler. And if Paul wanted to say wife, there's a simpler word he could have used to make that clear that that's what he meant. But the fact that he's using this vague word that means kind of vessel, he's saying, I think Paul is talking about the male genitals. It's an interesting interpretation. And he cites 1 Samuel 21 as his example. And I think I've got this scripture for you. It says this. David replied, so this is when David and his army go into the temple and they want to get bread because they're hungry. And this is how he responds to the priest. Indeed, women have been kept from us. The context is sexual, sexual activity. As usual, whenever I set out, these men's bodies, that Hebrew word used there, means things. They're these men's things. <laughs> All right? And in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, it uses the word vessels. So that's where... Fee gets his argument for, are holy even on missions that are not holy. How much more so today, etc. So basically, if we were writing this, we'd go, guys, keep it in your pants. That's what he's trying to say here, all right? That's it. But so the bigger principle that he's trying to say is, whether you go with wife, whether you go with body, whether you go with male genitals, he's saying self-control is the idea. Self-control. So not only avoid it, but live a self-controlled life in your body, because otherwise it only relates to men. But I think Paul's focus can't be just just to men, because it relates to all of us. Because he begins by saying brothers and sisters in verse 1. So however you want to interpret it, the bottom line, the principle is, let's be self-controlled. 
controlled in a way that is holy and honorable before God. Whether it's your body or your marriage or your private parts, live in such a way that you're in control of them and you're honoring God through them. The third thing he tells us, the third what, is that we are not to be like the pagans who don't know God and live a lustful life. He says, don't, don't be like the pagans who pursue passionate lust. And he says the reason is because they don't know God. The point that he's trying to say is that as people of God, when we know God, we know that we've been created by God. We have a sense of the fact that we have the image of God stamped on us, that God has rescued us and redeemed us from sin, from darkness, from death, to live as holy people of God. We know that God desires us to be uh, walking with him in sanctification and purity and holiness. We know that ultimately God will rescue us and redeem us and take us to be with him forever in glory. When you know all of that, why would you pursue passionate lust? That's Paul's argument. They don't know God. So two things that come out of that. One is we have no right to enforce biblical morality on a world that's not biblical. Got to keep that in mind. They don't know God. Part of our mission in our world is to help people know God. So that then they will understand how sexuality is a a flow-on effect of knowing God. But because you don't know God, also, you don't know that the other person has been created in the image of God, whether they're Christian or not. That they matter to God. That God loves them dearly. Because a pagan mindset does not have a dignity and a value for other human beings. Because there's no framework. Because if you think you've evolved from monkeys, then you're just there to exist to satisfy my needs and pleasures. There's no dignity and value in you. But as Christians, we know God. And we know that God is the creator and he's created human beings with intrinsic value and dignity because they're created in the image of God. So how can we pursue passionate lust? The fourth what he tells us, and that in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. Again, this phrase commentators have kind of wrestled with, who is Paul talking about? What is the specific And he Commenters think that maybe there's a situation of adultery that's happening in the church, and that's what Paul is addressing. Um, but again, the, the broader principle is don't hurt or wound. The word Paul uses is don't overstep. Don't, don't go beyond the boundaries that are there. Harm, hurt, that word is don't overstep. And the second word he uses carries this idea of don't exploit. Don't take advantage of other people for your own good. Now, when you think about sex outside of marriage, how much of it is governed by exploitation? Lewis mentioned it this morning, sex trafficking. That's about using other people. Pornography. The whole industry exists because there are people who subscribe to it. And all of that industry is about exploiting others. There's there's no part of, you know, even with pedophilia, it's taking the innocence and the purity of a child. Even lusting, when you walk down the street and you're ogling someone, it is exploiting them, exploiting their body for your own selfish pleasure. There's nothing that wouldn't come under that prohibition that says don't hurt, don't harm, don't exploit somebody else created in the image of God for your own benefit. Those are the four what's. Here's the three why's. 
Paul says there's three really, really powerful reasons for us to be thinking this way. The first one he's made clear, verse 3, he says it's God's will. Like so, many, so many of us, as Pentecostals particularly, we want to know the will of God. And usually we, we talk, say that in the, in the context of guidance. You know, we want to know the will of God with our job. Should I marry this person? Should I move overseas? Or, so many times the Bible makes explicit what the will of God is for us in certain areas of life. If we just started doing the will of God that's revealed, our lives would be so different. Paul makes it clear here. It's the will of God. So our primary motivation, he reminds us in chapter 4, verse 1, is to please God. It's to please God. This is who God is. God is holy, and God's desire is for us to reflect Him, to be like Him. And so our primary motivation is to just honor our Father. Honor the one like Christian remind us, who, who has rescued us from slavery and from darkness, who has redeemed us, who has set us free in Jesus, who has given us His Son, who has brought us into a new relationship with Him. We are His kids. We have the full inheritance of Christ. It's to live to delight and please Him. That's our number one motivation. That's the why. Why do this? Because it delights the heart of God when we reflect His nature and character. And Paul, in 1 Corinthians 6, again in the context of sexual sin in the church, he says that we have been redeemed, and so we are to honor God with our body. We've been redeemed with a high price, the, the death of God's Son. And we are to honor God with our bodies. That's our number one reason. So I want to say some things, and because of that, maybe for some of us, we need to repent. Maybe we need to repent. Maybe we've been sexually sinning. And married people, you know, sometimes in Christian circles, we think, oh, once you get married, that's it. There's no sexual sin for me now because I'm married. Not true. We, we can sin even in our marriages by using sex as a weapon to control, to manipulate, to dominate, to oppress. And that's sinful. And that's wrong. We can be unfaithful to our spouses with our eyes, with our hearts, with our minds. And that's sinful. Single people, you've got the challenge of maintaining your purity in a world that's obsessed with sex. That tells you, hey, you have every right. If, you, if you've got the desire, just, just do it. And the pressure that you feel. And maybe there's been compromise. And maybe there's, there's things in your life that you know don't come under this pleasing to God, honoring to God with my body. And we need to repent. I need to repent. You need to repent. The second thing Paul tells us here, second why, is that sexual sin really matters to God. He takes it really, really seriously. And we see that. He says, the Lord, verse uh, 6b, the Lord will punish. Notice, it's the Lord. You know, we don't like talking about Jesus as the punisher, but here Jesus is the punisher. He says, the Lord. The Lord will punish. That word there means avenger. So let me put it together for you. Jesus is the avenger that stands on the side of those who've been hurt sexually by you, by me. He says, the Lord will punish all those who commit such sins as we told you and warned you about. That word, warned, 
It's the, it's the only time that it appears in any of the, the church corpus. It appears in the pastoral epistles where Paul writes to, I think, Timothy. But in terms of the letters to the churches, this is the only time it appears. And that word means to strongly ex- exhort about something of extraordinary importance. Like Paul is pulling no punches here. And the reason I think he's doing that, because in 1 Corinthians 6, if you read that section, Paul says sexual sin is different to every other sin. The reason it's different is because it marks us somehow. On the very deepest part of our being, in our core, it it shifts and it changes something. And as a pastor, I know that's true. And even in your own personal experience, you probably know that that's true. Because I've talked to people... 20, 30, 40, 50 years after something was done to them sexually. Which is why in the Royal Commission, 30 years. But it hasn't gone away. You know, you might have gotten into a fight with someone, your, your brother, your sister. They might have even, you know, beaten you up and in school and whatever. And you might remember that vaguely. But if somebody touched you inappropriately... I guarantee you that you will remember that in a different way. Because God created sex to be this thing that fuses a husband and a wife together for life. And when it's taken out of that context, it brings destruction. See, sex is like a fire. You keep it in a fireplace, it brings warmth, it brings intimacy, it brings safety. There's a lot of good and light and beauty in that. But you take that same fire and you put it out in a, in a bush brings havoc and destruction God takes it real seriously and if you've been hurt I encourage you to come to God for your healing and for restoration and allow his Holy Spirit to minister to the deepest parts of you the third why he gives us is because God has a better way God has a better way. Verse 7, he says, God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. God's got a better way. In, 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 in chapter 2, he uses very similar language. In verse 12, when he's talking about this call of God, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. He's saying, trust God. Our culture wants to play this mind game and they go, okay, if God created us and God's given us these desires, then we should be able to express those desires because God put them there. Why would a loving God want to restrict me? And they're willing to trust their desires more than what God says in his word. That's a dangerous place to be because the Bible says that sin corrupts our desires, twists it. Not every desire is a good desire. And so Paul says, will you you trust God that he's actually got a better way? He's not trying to ruin your life by saying you can't have sex until you're married. He actually wants you to have the best life you can possibly have. Will you trust God with that? Will, Will you actually follow through that logic and go, yeah, if God is a loving God, then I need to really trust that his instructions are the most loving instructions and I need to live by them. And my life will be the best if I follow his word, if I submit to him, not my desires. I need to trust him. And yes, I'm single and I don't want to be. Or I'm single again and I wish I was married. Or whatever it is. Or all my friends are doing it. Or, or you know, is it there's something really, is it really wrong? I don't understand it. I don't get it. I don't get what the big fuss about it. All of those things are like in the garden where the devil says, did God really say? Yeah, he did. And it's because he wants something much better for you. 
the kingdom. And, and that speaks to this idea that sex is not the be-all and end-all. And sometimes in church we make it that. But God says, no, there's a big lie. I want, you to give, I want to give you the kingdom. And I want you to live in the fullness of that. Will you trust me that my way is best? That's the third one. Here's the two hows. The last verse, Paul says, Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being but God, the very God who gives you His Holy Spirit. And we've been talking a lot about the Holy Spirit. Dash mentioned the Holy Spirit the last week. Paul explicitly says this is the how. The reason why God can so severely rebuke and, and, and challenge us is because He's given us the resources to be able to do this. He doesn't just say, okay, now I want you to go and live in the midst of a corrupt, sex-crazed world and live in abstinence and live a holy life and live a sanctified life to please me and go for it. No, he says, I've given you the Holy Spirit. So to reject it is to reject all that God is wanting to do in your life through what he has given you, which is the Holy Spirit. And it's the Holy Spirit. It's, it's again, a reminder that it's God's very nature. And we need to trust the Holy Spirit, that He is doing His good work in our hearts. But the Bible tells us in, in Corinthians and in Romans that God's Holy Spirit's purpose is to transform us to the image of God. And He will remind us and convict us and challenge us because He is shaping and molding us into the image of God. Sanctification is the work of the Holy Spirit in the context of our community. Trust that the Holy Spirit's working. In those times when you fail, in those times when you doubt and when you're struggling and wrestling, trust that the Spirit of the living God, who is the Holy Spirit of God, is doing His work in your heart to make you more like the God who is your Father. Trust the Holy Spirit. Lean into Him. Rely on Him. In those moments of temptation and challenge, Remind yourself that God has given you His Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul does the same thing. He says to them, you're the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit lives in you. Trust Him. Look to Him. Seek Him. Because He's working in your heart. The second how is rely on the power of the Holy Spirit. The, the Spirit is not just a, an impersonal force. It's the power of God. It's God Himself. It's the third person of the Trinity that lives in you. He, he's the one in Romans 8. You know, Paul spends his whole chapter reminding them about setting their minds on the, on the Spirit and setting their hearts on the Spirit because it's through the Spirit that you can put to death the deeds of the flesh. Galatians 5, we looked at that last week where Paul reminds them, if you're walking in the Spirit, you won't satisfy the lusts of the flesh. It's in His power. It's in His enabling. But it's a partnership. Because in Romans 8, he says, we put to death... By the Spirit's power, the deeds of the flesh. And Paul in Romans 8 reminds them, you are to set your mind on the things of the Spirit because the mind set on the flesh is death and destruction. In Galatians 5, he keeps using language like, keep in step with the Spirit, walk in the Spirit, be filled with the Spirit. Will this happen overnight? Yeah, for some people, it'll happen like that. Porn addiction, sex addiction, whatever it is, like that. But for others, it's a daily walk. 
For others, it's a growing sanctification. For others, it's day by day as they intentionally set their minds in the Spirit, as they use the means of grace that God's given them, and they're renewing their mind in the Word. They're renewing their hearts as they worship. They're they're relying on the Spirit's power through prayer and through community. They're they're trusting the mechanisms of of accountability and, and support of the community and connect group. They're using all of those means of grace to keep growing in Christ and for them it's a daily walk but because of the truth of God's word the spirit will do his work to conform you to the image of God and you will as Leviticus says become holy because I will make you holy and that's the promise we can hold on to it's not just a command it's also a promise that God will do it so Church, we want to grow in holiness. In a world, in a culture that tells us, you know what, it doesn't really matter what you do in your body. The Bible says, yeah, it does. It's the temple of the Holy Spirit. Let's remind ourselves regularly that we have been redeemed at a great price and we are to honor God with our bodies. Why don't you bow your head? Why don't you close your eyes? Why don't you just spend a moment just reflecting on some of these things and allowing the Spirit of God to speak to you. And as I said, when we looked at the three whys, I believe that God is wanting to speak to many here. And maybe what you're feeling challenged about is repentance. Because you know you haven't been living according to the will of God to please God. And right now in this moment, why don't you bring your heart to God and ask for His forgiveness? Because He's here. He's here. And the promise of 1 John 1.9 is that if we confess, He is faithful and just to cleanse us, to forgive us of all unrighteousness. In this moment, why don't you do that? And for others, it might be healing that we need this morning because we still remember. We remember our past sin and we know that we're forgiven and we know that God has made us right and welcomed us back, but the memories are still there. The wounds are still there. And maybe we've been the ones that have hurt and violated and exploited others. Or maybe we're the ones that were hurt and exploited and taken advantage of and violated by someone else. And we need God's healing and His grace and His ministry this morning. Or maybe you're in the third category where you're really struggling and you're, you're wondering whether it's all worth it. And you're ready to kind of maybe sell out and take the easy way and, and give up. And maybe you needed to be reminded this morning to trust God because His way is better. It's not easier but it is better because He wants what's best for you. And maybe it's coming to that place of surrender again and trust and putting your life and your hands and your your feet and your body and your sexuality and your future in God's hands. Holy Spirit, come. Thank you, Jesus.
know this is a difficult topic, but I really feel to just linger a moment and then just, I'll, I'll be here at the end of this service to pray for whoever needs, feels they need prayer. If God's spoken to you about something, you need, to, you need to deal with something, you need to make something right or just receive God's grace and comfort in Jesus to be reminded of His great love for you. We'd love to pray with you and for you this morning. Why don't we stand together? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for listening to the Parramatta Christian Church podcast. To hear other sermons or to find out more about our church, please visit our website at pcc.org.au.